rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hi everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Neumeyer, and today we are going to talk about the issues of Superman and World's Finest and Action Comics with a March 1972 cover date. Uh, before we begin, we do have a couple of email. well, I say a couple, but it's really only one email, and this email comes from a good friend, and good friend to just about every podcaster that I listen to anyway, uh, Steve Rogers. And the title of this email is, I Hear That Train A-Comin', and I would l probably sing this for you, but, um, sorry Steve, I can't sing, but, so, it's, I hear that train a-comin', it's rolling around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Bell Reef Prison, and time keeps dragging on, and that train keeps rolling down to, Hmm. There were fictional DC cities to seem to rhyme with San Antonio to fit. Well, anyways, yeah, I, it sounds like you are recording right at the train station there. Glad to hear your wife came out of surgery fine. All the best in the recovery period. On the Superman topics, okay, now that Lex has been seen in two Bronze Age appearances, I thought I'd offer up this question. Which is the Lex Luthor you prefer? The evil genius mad scientist with the hard-on to rid the world of Superman and the desire to see himself replaced as the world's savior and champion that was Lex from the Golden Age through the Bronze Age and eventually the Luther of Hackman Spacey in the films? Or the Gordon Gecko Donald Trump Luther who is a reputable businessman to the public, but obviously is an evil schemer and genius, especially once seeing Superman replacing his Metropolis savior. Essentially, the Luther since the Burn reboot, the animated series, Lois and Clark and Smallville. My two cents quickly, while Hackman and Spacey are, well, Hackman, though Coach Dale is, in my opinion, more iconic than Lex Luthor, I mean, just listen to the championship game speech for crying out loud, and Spacey, I prefer Luthor as a suit with an empire to control, more so than the guy that always plots and schemes for Grant's downfall. Kind of gives more weight to the struggle between the two and in almost a law enforcement versus the mafia sort of way. The good guys need a lot of luck and hope for that one slip-up. That, that informant finally pays off, and it all needs to be airtight and upholdable in a court of law to finally get the big mafia kingpin behind bars. Same goes for Luther as a businessman. Superman knows Luther is the scum of the earth, but because of the public persona and all behind-the-scenes machinations, it will take a lot for Luther to be behind bars. Unlike the Luther scene in the Bronze Age and the Christopher Reeve films. Okay, story is done. Back to the Slimer for you, Lex. See you in 20. Anyway, just thought that might be something to chew on. Steve. Steve, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, as much as I like uh, the idea of a uh, Lex Luthor who is this strong, or not this strong, as much as I like the idea of a Lex Luthor that is constantly coming up with plans and just ruminating in prison, waiting for his next chance, and can get out at any time, and all that stuff, and is known very much as an evil, evil man. I do kind of prefer the, burn, the uh, Crisis to Crisis version. 
I don't know how much that comes from just because that was the Uber I read growing up. And uh, that my first probably real good introduction to Lex was um, actually the 1988 movie Spears cartoon, which of course had that version of Luther in it. But basically, the way I see it is um, I like the idea that as a businessman, he could do all this stuff behind the scenes and Superman could never prove it. And even though Lex always failed and Superman knew that it was Luther, he couldn't pin it on him, it just set up a really cool dynamic. Now, it's not something I would have liked to see every issue, but I thought they used it pretty well, and I liked having him, seeing him as a businessman. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, a lot better than this. He's built the empire on his genius and being able to create things and improve things, but the difference is that he, can, he actually uses people to do it. I feel that the businessman is probably even more evil, uh, if that's possible. Just because the post-crisis leader, basically, he uses anyone. He controls everybody, just about. He could get them fired and then make sure that they never got work ever again. He can have people arrested. I mean, basically, he was the most powerful man in Metropolis until Superman came around. And when Superman came around, he was number two. So I actually think that that's actually a more evil version of Luther, and I that's the version of Luther I think of. So um, also thank you for uh, good news about my wife. She's doing really well. She's walk, you know, she's walking around doing exercise. I mean, she's pretty much back to normal. Her uh, scars are just about all healed up, and um, now she's worrying about uh, making sure she can, uh, what kind of bathing suit she's going to get. So she's very happy with this. Apologize again for the train station. This beginning of this episode, of course, uh, Sky's apparently decided to open up. So hopefully um, when I clear up some of the recording, it doesn't have all the rain and thunder and lightning. But, uh, well, you won't hear lightning, but you know what I mean. It's been an interesting 2011 so far in my neck of the woods up here in northeast Oklahoma. Uh, between getting snowed in for a couple weeks uh, due to blizzards and beginning of February and now we're getting floods at the end of April so it's been a lot of fun we're gonna have a lot of uh, Mayflowers I'm thinking so um, anyway thank you very much for writing in I do have a Facebook message uh, from Michael Bradley this was in response to my last episode which unfortunately was about two weeks ago but anyway he writes it was good to hear a new episode of Superman of the Bronze Age this week and returning with the Galactic Gollum can't wait to hear your thoughts on the next issue of Superman, given the villain in it. Uh, anyway, the main reason I'm writing is to say thanks for the continued plugging of both the Thrilling Adventures of Superman and the Legends of Batman. Glad to hear you're enjoying the latter, too. Uh, so, thank you for writing in, Michael. And um, I am enjoying both of those. Michael Bradley has been on an episode of my show. He also hosts the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which covers the Golden Age of Superman in all its various forms, comics, newspaper strips, and later on, the movie series, the cartoon shorts, radio series, and all that. And then, of course, he co-hosts Legends of the Batman with Michael Kaiser. That show, basically planning to cover every Batman appearance from Detective Comics number 27 to today. And while they don't have a lot of coverage to deal with at the point they're at now, I believe, as I'm recording this, they've only released episode 3. They're, <laughs> they're really going to be busy 
in a few years, I'm guessing. So, um, I really want, I want to plug those shows. Those are both good shows. So, thank you again for writing in, Michael. And um, I guess now I'm going to play a couple promos, and we'll be right back. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! Attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings with a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton. The man of steel. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com. Presenting Superman. We're going to start off this month with Superman number 249, which was released on January 11th, 1972, with a rather interesting and pretty cool uh, cover by Dick Dillon and Neil Adams. Showing Superman as he tumbles, trying to hold on to what looks like the antenna at the top of a uh, one of the Metropolis skyscrapers. While behind him, a cowboy, desperado kind of person uh, with a on a winged steed is coming after him. And Superman's costume's torn up, and it doesn't look like he's winning this battle. And it just says, introducing Superman's latest and greatest foe, Terra Man. I don't know if that's true, but... Anyway, uh, the title of this of the first story in the book is The Challenge of Terra Man, written by Carrie Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. And, and this story has been reprinted in Superman in the 70s, which uh, was a trade paperback that came out in the year 2000. The story starts off with Sunset in Metropolis, 1972. Not a typical time for a stagecoach to show up out of nowhere in the middle of rush hour, which of course gets the attention of Superman. As Superman approaches, the drivers, Jess and Luke, uh, mention that they were sent by The Man to deliver a strong box and a message to Superman. The message? The Man is coming for him to settle some personal business. 
So Jess, Luke, and the stagecoach take off and pretty much disappear. So Superman checks out the box with his X-ray vision uh, for fear that just prying it open with his super strength will cause some kind of, will, you know, activate some kind of trap. But it turns out that the man is smarter than Superman thought uh, because his X-ray vision ends up igniting uh, special explosives inside the box. So Superman throws the box straight up into the air, allowing it to explode, which actually causes it to reveal the message, Earth isn't big enough for the two of us, Superman. By sundown tomorrow, you will be dead. So at this point, Superman starts trembling, sweating, and getting some stomach cramps. So he takes off to collect himself, but not before Edith and Archie Bunker make a cameo to tell us why he's flown up, up, and away. You see, up in the clouds, Superman is able to reflect on the fact that he's not only got a new villain, using a combination of futuristic technology and old west theatrics, but he's also dealing with his most current bout of birth spells. What's a birth spell? Well, these birth spells affect him every six Kryptonian solar years. Which you would think they might have mentioned before, but nope. So, you see, on Krypton, birthdays are not a time of rejoicing like they are here on Earth, but a deep time of personal sorrow as the Kryptonian native mourned the time of his birth. It has been practiced on Krypton for so long that it has become an inborn instinct, so Superman cannot help himself from feeling the effects of the birth spell. He first felt the effects when he was but nine years old, and basically has felt them every few years. And unfortunately, due to his superpowers, the birth spell, of course, has unpredictable effects. Knowing the full effects of the birth spell will be hitting him soon, Superman is determined to protect the city and stop the man at all costs, because that's what being Superman is all about. So, sunrise the next day, the man, known only as The Man, arrives on his flying horse for a showdown with Superman. Of course, at this time, Superman's hit with a birth spell, as his x-ray vision is somehow reversed, so that he's looking at his own brain. So while he's doing that, The Man fires a bullet from his six-shooter that actually grows as it flies towards Superman, hitting him with enough of an impact to actually knock him off his feet. When Superman's vision clears, he pulverizes the giant bullet into a million particles, then uses his super breath to trap the man in a dust storm. As Superman goes in for an attack, he feels another birth spell coming on, so he jumps at the man, hoping to take him down before it affects him. Unfortunately, he's not fast enough, and actually ends up flying out of control and accelerating out in space. Straining, he's able to use the moon's gravity to turn around and slingshot himself back to Earth, crashing near where he actually took off. And the impact of his crash actually knocks the man off his feet. But the man just gets back up, puts his hat back on, looks mad as heck, and lights a cheroot, which I think I'm saying that right. It looks like a cigarette but whatever. Uh, unfortunately, this is actually a weapon, and the smoke from the cheroot um, is unearthly and ultra-toxic and wraps itself around Superman, actually choking him. So while Superman's busy, the man loads his six-shooter and fires off six quick shots at the Man of Steel, which hit him with the destructive energy of an atomic bomb. 
In other words, it doesn't do much damage. But Superman gets hit with another birth spell that both paralyzes him and causes him to hover upside down. At this point, the man speaks up and introduces himself as Terra Man, meaning he's from Earth, and then takes a bullet made of xanonite, which is apparently the hardest substance in the galaxy, and reckons that he can use it to, do, to shoot a hole right through that big S on Superman's chest. Fortunately, Terra Man didn't notice that Superman had actually caught one of the bullets from earlier, and as Terra Man's about to fire his gun, Superman spits the bullet back at the gun, which actually jams the barrel and causes a misfire. Another good thing is that at about this point, the paralysis lets up enough for Superman to actually knock Terra Man out with a good punch. So Terra Man is arrested, and Superman is left to wonder who is Terra Man. Meanwhile, Terra Man's winged horse is flying around, waiting for his master to summon him. To be continued. Okay, uh, first off, I'm going to start with the negatives on this. Um, for one thing, there's not any mention of any of Superman's supporting characters, other than a brief flashback uh, that shows Mom and Pa Kent, and the fact that they're in Metropolis. We don't see the WGBS building. We have not even a mention of Morgan Edge, Lois, Jimmy, Perry, anybody. So I kind of not like. I kind of didn't like that, but you know, once in a while I can understand that. Um, also, while it's an intriguing concept. I would have liked to have known why Kryptonians consider their birthdays as times of sorrow. Um, it just seemed kind of weird to me. I, of course, maybe because I'm from Earth, I can't wrap my head around it, but I just don't see why uh, being born is such a bad thing, especially if, considering how advanced Krypton was. I mean, it's not like there was a whole lot of danger of the mother dying, although maybe when it started there was. I'm not sure. Um, um, on the plus side, though, I thought this was a pretty fun story. Uh, I liked the art, especially the half-page splash of Terra Man on page 9, which was his, basically his first introduction. Uh, the coloring effects that were used, uh, with the, you get the city beneath him, the clouds opening up with the sun shining right behind him, and Terra Man riding in on his horse. Um, I mean, I think it looks pretty cool. Um, and once again, we get Bates showing uh, the determination of Superman by having him not give up, even though he knows he's going to have to deal with both the birth spell and Terraman at the same time, even though he's clearly worried about it. After all, that's what being Superman's all about. Uh, he did this before, and I thought that was cool, and this just shows what kind of guy Superman is. Uh, he's going to do whatever it takes to get the job done, regardless of the obstacles before him. And that's what Superman is. Now in this story, now we don't get much from Terra Man. All we know is he's not an alien, he's actually from Earth. Uh, the backup actually sheds more light on him, but I'll get to that in a second. But at this point, he's kind of a cool character, in my opinion. Uh, he's got all these different kinds of weapons that do kind of harm Superman and cause some problems, even when he's not fighting, um, you know, with the birth spell. On the other hand, I kind of, th th there might be a good reason why Carrie Bates threw in the birth spell thing, in addition to having to go up against Terra Man, because perhaps he knew 
that Terror Man on his own could not take down Superman, so we had to make it tougher. Perhaps. But the the cool these cool that's cool technology he's using, uh like souped up old west stuff is really cool. It also helps that my father in law is really into the old west stuff, so um it kinda I've been on kind of an old west kick since for the past ten years that I've been married. Um but yeah, so I thought this was a pretty good story. I enjoyed this, and um, I am really looking forward to going over this part two because I remember liking it. Okay, so the backup feature. Uh, this one we don't actually have. It's not Krypton. It's not Private Life of Clark Kent. It's just The Origin of Terra Man, written by Carrie Bates, with art by Dick Dillon, and inks by Neil Adams. Okay, so, Origin of Terra Man. We start off on a blistering hot afternoon. A Dutch, Dutch, a dust-drenched stagecoach lumbers over the western trail. Who, you know, is focused in the usual western attire that you would see, pants, the cowboy boots. Uh, but he's got this huge gun hanging out of the back of his pocket because, you know, he's a little kid. Uh, they, uh, the stagecoach comes up, and of course the young boy draws his gun, tells the drivers to throw down their strongbox, or he'll plug you both full of land. So um, we learn that he's about ten, and they throw down the strongbox and leave uh, while the kid, you know, shoots off into the sky, kind of scared. And the boy's father comes over, and uh, pretty much tells him he's, he's done a very good job, makes a follow father proud to see his only kin. Following in his own dad's footsteps. The father's name is Jess Manning, and his son Toby uh, is being trained so that they can become the most famous and best outlaw team in the West. And so Jess takes his six shooter out and fires the lock on the strong box and opens it up, and they count all the money. But suddenly, the money kind of floats up out of his hands, and we look up and see a flying saucer. Yes, a flying saucer. And uh, we learn that from the alien standing on top that his manga bean uh, has secured another prize for his galactic-wide currency collection. He actually goes around the universe collecting different currencies. Basically, he's a robber, but he makes it sound less bad. So, Chess takes out a six-shooter again and fires at the alien and actually hits him in the shoulder. But... The alien just kind of gets ticked off and blasts him back with some kind of weapon to... tries to just stun him apparently, but because he's so ticked off, he actually ends up killing him. And this alien comes from a race uh, where once you've killed someone, you get a mental death link, uh, which actually allows you to hear or feel or whatever the innermost thoughts, memories, and ambitions of the person that's dying. Uh, so, while he's getting that information from Jess and learning of the plans he had for his son, Jess is actually uh, kind of drawing on the ground a circle around a bullet. So, uh, the alien feels kind of bad about this, so he decides he's going to take his father's place and teach his son Toby his super skills, arm him with ultra weapons and they can become a great duo across the galaxy. But obviously, Toby wouldn't be willing to do that if he knew that, you know, he killed his dad. So he uses a hypnotic 
grin to erase the incident from his memory. And since, of course, he also knows English because he convinced they instantly assimilate other languages, he just tells Toby that it was the law that done it, boy. I seen the sheriff gun him down myself. So, over time, and with a lot of training, we see how Toby learns how to become an outlaw, basically, even more. Uh, we start off with Space Bandit, um, actually fitting something, or forming a surgery, I guess, and fitting an oxygenator thermostat inside Toby's lungs, which not only allows him to breathe in space, but also um, survive without, you know, some kind of space and uh, later on we see him use an energy lasso to tie up a young Arguvian space steed and by the time it's a full-grown stallion of course uh, Toby will be known as Terraman, a man of earth and this is of course the winged horse that he rides to earth you know to take down some of the issue and um, Next up, we see Toby, uh, now full-grown, uh, with a nice handlebar mustache uh, in his full Terraman outfit, riding his special, his flying steed, down to uh, the planet Bexol uh, to see if he can pull a job all on his own. He charges in, which ends up causing him to set off an, an intricate kind of alarm system. They're about to fire a cosmic cannon. So Toby actually uh, takes out some stuff that basically is like chewing tobacco, but it's actually some kind of magical herb that gives him the power to temporarily create any form of matter that he can dream up. So he dreams up a giant Gila monster from Earth, which actually scares everyone away. And so he takes the loot and heads back to his alien stepfather, I guess, and to show him exactly what kind of man he raised. Once he gets back on the ship, um, of course, the alien is very happy to see what he's done and that it warms his heart, or at least warms him, um, to see him carrying on. So, Toby mentions that his father had similar words back on Earth the day the alien killed him, and with his six-shooter, he pretty much fatally wounds the alien. And it turns out that little circle with the bullet in it actually uh, kept allowed Toby to remember the alien killed his father, and um, it was actually a rough diagram of the ship with a bullet, the symbol of death, planted into it. Basically, this was uh, Jess naming the killer. So Toby actually went up on the ship, allowed him to train him, and learned everything that the alien knew just so he could use it to kill him. So what, what the alien did Jess heads off back to Earth, and we find out that due to some kind of uh, discrepancy in time, uh, not discrepancy, a paradox of space travels, time slows down while traveling near the speed of light. Thus, while Toby was only aged 20 years in the two decades of spaceflight, almost 100 years have gone by on Earth, and of course, it's actually been about 90-some years. And his first stop, he decides, is to destroy the leading symbol of law and justice on Earth. Superman, because Earth isn't big enough for the two of them. And thus we learn why he's going after Superman. Yeah, so the negatives on this. Actually, for seven pages, I don't really have too many negatives. Um, 
the only thing I don't like is that he just decides to go after Superman because he's the symbol of law and justice. There's a lot of symbols, for, uh, big symbols of law and justice on Earth, but they make it sound like they've got some big personal business deal uh, that he has to deal with, while we don't really see any indication of that in the origin story. Uh, but, you know, whatever. On the plus side, though, this is a pretty cool story. Pretty simple cat origin uh, that does come back. Uh, they did play with it a little bit more uh, about 10 years or so in uh, the new adventures of Superboy, which I'm contemplating probably at least covering that backup story. But um, it's cool to see, you know, that this kid was basically being brought up from the beginning to be a villain. Uh, so, and he just continues with that, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, again, I like some of the cool, uh, cool weaponry. Um, while I don't believe it could actually work, I do like the idea of giving him an oxygenated thermostat so he can survive in space. Um, I like how he basically, this, that flying steed is his, and he basically broke him. So I guess that's cool because it, you know, gives them a bond that the horse wouldn't have with anyone else. And, um, yeah, uh, so it's a fun little story. I like the art. It's not perfect because, you know, it is Dick Dillon starting off, but Neil Adams really brings a lot to it and really helps it look really cool. So, yeah. Uh, now, this story was reprinted in the limited collector's edition C39, which is the secret origin of the supervillains uh, with a October-November 1975 cover date. And I thought that this was kind of cool because... It's supposed to be the secret origin of supervillains. Now, the cover shows Luther, Joker, Captain Cole, Silvana, Sinestro, and Cheetah going against their usual, you know, superhero counterparts with Luther going up against Superman, Joker against Batman, Captain Cole against The Flash, Savannah against Captain Marvel, Sinestro against Green Lantern, and Cheetah against Wonder Woman. But when I looked at the actual stories that are featured in there, we get a Luther story, a Joker story, Captain Cold, Savannah, and Terra Man. There's no Sinestro, and there's no Cheetah. And Terra Man isn't on the cover, but he has a story inside. I don't know why they did that. Uh, unless maybe it was some kind of pinup artwork and they figured, oh, this will work. But I don't know. That was I thought that was weird. But anyway. So you can also see it there if you can find that. Um, uh, meanwhile, uh, there is one more story, um, High Man on a Flagpole, which is written by Jerry Siegel, with art by John Sakella, 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 I'm going to go with Sakella, and George, uh, George Rousses, 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 I don't know how to say that, I'm sorry. If George is, if George is still alive and is listening to this, I apologize. Uh, but Superman, of course, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this is, that story was actually reprinted from Superman number 46 uh, with a May-June 1947 cover date, making it 25 years old. Isn't that cool? Well, a little over 25 years old. Uh, not quite 25 years old. In any event, um, so a couple more uh, promos, and I'll be back with the next issue. After these messages, we'll be right
Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film, to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a mini-cast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid 1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Okay. Uh, next up we have World's Finest number 210 uh, which is actually released on January 25th 1972, with a pretty cool-looking cover by Neil Adams once again. Uh, the title of this story is The World of the Faceless Slaves, written by Elliot S. Magan, with art by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella, as usual, edited by Julie Schwartz, and of course Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. And this story starts off one morning in Star City, as Green Arrow is walking through town in full costume, 
on his way to an appointment that Oliver Queen has with the mayor. When from out of nowhere, a kid wearing a Superman costume is actually falling from a great height. We don't see if it's the top of the building or one of the, you know, fire escape, but he's falling. So fortunately, Green Arrow was able to use his uh, inflatable raft arrow to save the boy and cushion his landing. After sending the boy home, Green Arrow changes out of his costume and is able to overhear Clark Kent doing a live report on the steps of City Hall. Now this is because the mayor of Star City recently announced his retirement and has a list of people who he would like to have possibly take over for him. And one of them is Oliver Queen. And when Ollie walks up, Clark rushes down to interview him, you know, due to him being announced as one of the candidates. But Ollie kind of has to brush him off and heads inside. So at this point, while continuing his review, his review <laughs> while continuing his uh, report, Clark flashes back to Ollie getting the call from the mayor, telling him that he'd like Ollie to succeed him, or to succeed him. Apparently, Black Canary, Green Lantern, Batman, and Superman all tried to talk him out of it, uh, because you can't just go from being a crime fighter responsible for his own actions to being a mayor and worrying about making sure a hundred departments each get their little jobs done. They had had him convinced, but that night he'd been hit with a billy club during a race riot, and when a kid, a little kid, came up to check on him, the kid got shot and died the next morning. Uh, now this was actually from uh, an actual story that did see print in Green Lantern number 87, which is by this point a couple months old, and it was kind of, uh, so, you know, they're not just making stuff up here. Uh, this, of course, caused Ollie to change his mind again and decide he's going to try running for mayor. So later on, Ollie exits the building and starts to give Clark some crap about ambushing him, but Clark basically tells him to expect more of the same if he continues to run for his bid for mayor because they don't leave you know, politicians alone. So Ollie tells Clark that he has a week to make his final decision, but he's not sure yet. As Clark is about to leave in the mobile newsroom, Ollie mentions that he's out of money and asks for a lift. So as they drive along, everything around them starts going kind of psychedelic and wonky, uh, and they think they're on a bad acid trip when they suddenly find themselves in a strange new place. I'm just kidding, they don't think they're on an acid trip, it just kind of looks like it. Um, so they change into their costumes really quick, and Superman heads up to do some reconnaissance, but hits some kind of invisible barrier. Then Efron, Sorcerer Supreme, which I can't believe is allowed to be used outside of Marvel, uh, welcomes them to Valiathan and starts going on about how he's found a fine new champion to fight the king for the crown. So Superman, assuming that he needs him, uh, says he's not participating, but Efron corrects him and states that the champion is Green Arrow because he actually had to learn his skills. It wasn't an accident of birth. So he reveals that uh, it really doesn't matter because Ephron controls the king anyway, and the people of Goliathan uh, use magic as a source of power, like we use oil and electricity. And the people are born faceless and stay that way until they can establish themselves as individuals. Uh, about this point, Superman pretty much decides enough is enough, and re after realizing that they are actually about 15,000 years in the past, he grabs Green Arrow and they take off, intending to fly back to the future. But Efron hits both heroes with some kind of magical bolts and basically teleports Superman elsewhere while sending Green Arrow to the arena. 
As the first trial is prepared in the arena, Superman is attacked by the Demon of Disease, who, due to its magical nature, is able to really hurt Superman. So Superman tries flying off with the demon right behind him, and is about to succumb to the demon until they land in pure water, which basically kills the demon. Back at the arena, Green Arrow takes on the king in a game of shoot the clay pigeons with an imaginary bow and arrow. Only in this instance, if they're able to actually pretend to hit the pigeons, an arrow actually appears out of nowhere to hit it. It's kind of hard to explain. But meanwhile, while they're playing this, Superman is scooping up dirt to verify that this is indeed Earth, even though the place has a strange feel to it. Suddenly, the demon of ignorance, in the form of a cloud, uh, kind of rolls in and clouds Superman's mind, leaving it pretty much empty. So this causes Superman to crash back to the ground. Uh, because he... Oh, I'm sorry. So Superman takes off again, and while he's flying, the demon of ignorance, in the form of a cloud, actually rolls in and clouds Superman's mind, leaving it empty, which causes Superman to crash to the ground. Uh, reaching out with his hand, he ends up scooping up some dirt, which actually reminds him of checking things out just a couple minutes ago, allowing all of his memories to return. So with this, the Demon of Ignorance is defeated, and Superman takes off again for the arena. Unfortunately, before he can get too far, he's attacked by the Demon of Poverty, who takes away Superman's most precious possession, his powers. Back at the arena, Green Arrow, armed only with a toy sword and shield, is supposed to battle the king, who is armed with a full-size sword and shield. But Green Arrow, who by this point has also noticed the strange feel of the place, realizes that he can actually make the sword and shield full-size too, thus evening the odds and allowing Green Arrow to take the king down. But when he refuses to kill the king, um, Green Arrow tries to pretty much defend himself and tries to talk the crowd into rising up against Ephron the Sorcerer. But unfortunately, while he's doing this, this allows the king time to recover, stand up, and pretty much knock Green Arrow out with a blow to the head from the sword. Meanwhile, Superman realizes that the strangeness that he's been feeling is the magic of the air, and that it can be and that it can be used as a power source, that he should be able to absorb it to get his powers back. So Superman uh, then decides to take matters into his own hands pretty much demands all that all of the demons to leave at once. And they actually leave. And then we see Superman actually absorb a bunch of the magic. Uh, it's like flowing into him. And so he's able to that pretty much brings his powers back. And he flies off to the arena in time to save Green Arrow from literally losing his head. Superman grabs Ephron, who suddenly becomes weaker due to Superman still absorbing his magical energy as well. This breaks everyone out of Ephron's spell, allowing just about everyone to have faces again. And Ephron's apprentice, Kenal, decides he's going to take over as king. Now at this point, the magic is finally starting to get to Superman, so he and Green Arrow head back to the future while Superman still has the power to do so. Superman and Green Arrow uh, fly back to the future and uh, land as Green Arrow admits that he thinks this is all some part of Superman's plan to convince him not to run for mayor, but that it worked. Unfortunately, Superman's in too much pain for all of this to have been fake, uh, but about this time, a police officer actually comes up and asks them to leave due to the emotion their presence is causing. So Superman offers to take Green Arrow out to dinner once they switch back to their other identities. And that's the end. Now, um, 
problems I had with this story. Um, now, at first, Green Arrow thinks that the kid was falling is actually Superman. I don't know how that's possible due to not only the uh, position of the kid, because he wasn't flying down or looking like he's trying to do a landing. I mean, he's literally uh, he looks like a skydiver. But, I mean, it's a little kid and they start about Superman costume. Hello? Come on. Um, after they first arrived in the past, um, we actually, it, it's kind of weird. I'm not sure what was going on here. But Super, uh, Superman, Green Arrow's mask keeps, like, disappearing and then reappearing again. Which is just weird because when his mask isn't on, they literally are drawing the eyes in. But when the mask, or, no, yeah, when the mask is missing, they do draw in the eyes like it's supposed to not be there. But then they draw it back. It's almost like they realize, you know what, we need to have Green Arrow with the mask on and then just missed a few spots or something. I don't know. It just keeps, you know, disappearing and reappearing. It's pretty noticeable. Well, when, at least when you're reviewing it for a podcast. Um, and then uh, Superman just assumes he's a champion. Now, granted, just about every other time this has been the case, but I kind of like that he wasn't in this instance. Um, but it kind of makes Superman look like he thinks kind of highly of himself. I do have to admit, though, this is like the third out of four stories in a row that deal with magic, and it's getting kind of old. Uh, granted, maybe you didn't notice it as much in like the four or five months that these stories have been coming up, but I mean, come on. I know that the only thing that can hurt Superman now is magic, because Kryptonite's gone, but jeez. Um, I'd like to know how the swords don't actually cut Green Arrow or the King when they make contact, but the only obvious answer I can come up with is magic, so I'm just not going to even bother asking and just move kind of right along. Um, so basically, the story, Superman kind of becomes like a parasite. And the question I have is, how does he know how to start absorbing the magic? And how did Green Arrow know that he could use the magic to make the sword and shield bigger? Um, you know, I know, it's magic, but still, come on. Um, but what makes Kano such a good king? He didn't fight for it. No one said, make him the king. It, he just said, okay, I'm going to be the king. And he looks like kind of a kid, so it's kind of weird. Um, I don't quite understand why some of the people didn't have faces when Efron's spell was broken. Is it because they really are born without faces? Or did they just forget to draw them in on some people? Or maybe it's just hadn't hit them yet. I don't know. But in any event, that was kind of weird. On one hand, at the end, I like how the heroes... Uh, standing around or actually draw attention to themselves. But at the beginning, Green Arrow's just walking along. Well, basically, it's an alley, so I guess it's okay. But he's basically walking along in full costume, in the daylight, and it's no problem. Um, also, the mobile newsroom got left in the past, along with the briefcase that Ollie was using to store his Green Arrow outfit. So, Ollie can't really change back to Green, you know, Green Arrow can't switch back to Ali at this point, at least not easily. And also, um, yeah, the mobile newsroom's missing, so Superman kind of has to build another one other, or try to explain to Morgan Edge where it went. So that's a little weird. Um, having said that, the whole story wasn't crap. I thought I liked the continuity here uh, because Superman at one point, is actually applying something that Dr. Fate told him a couple of issues ago. And while I'm getting tired of the, um, 
overuse of the magic in the stories. I do like how Superman apparently is actually learning from those stories. And we actually get reference to previous stuff. I like how we're actually getting some continuity in these Superman books. So I think those are pretty cool. Um, also, the flashback of the kid getting shot from Green Lantern uh, number 87. They actually took two panels from Green Lantern 87. So it does look a little off because we get Neil Adams' art uh, when we've been dealing with uh, Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella. So unfortunately, it kind of makes me wish Neil Adams was doing the art in this issue because it looked really good. Having said that, the art in this story really wasn't bad. Um, it was actually quite good in a lot of places. So I won't talk. I don't want to speak too badly of it, but yeah, it was interesting. Um, let's see. Um, backup stories in this. Uh, we have the Sword of Hate, which is a black pirate story that was written and drawn by Sheldon Moldoff and was reprinted by or reprinted from Sensation Comics number two with a February 1942 cover date. And the other story is The Adventure of the Nosy Waitress featuring the King. I'm not sure who that is. Uh, written by Gardner Fox with art by Harry Lampert. And that was actually reprinted from World's Best Comics number one from 1941, which also featured a story featuring a thin young whippersnapper of a character known as uh, Superman. Um, yeah, that has already been discussed on John Wilson's podcast, and I think it's going to be talked about pretty soon on Michael Bradley's show. So make sure, if you want to hear more about those, you'll want to check those out. Um, also, this issue, we got another letter from Bob Rosakis um, talking about... Uh, uh, world's finest 207 and i'm gonna go ahead and read it because you know why not uh because you know he becomes pretty famous later on it, it's i'm just amazed at how often he got printed back in these days i mean you would think there's a lot of letters coming in what are the odds but i guess they just like his letters so anyway um he writes dear editor what i really liked about world's finest number 207 was the return of dr light I'm glad to see you were continuing his individual attacks on the various members of the Justice League. So I'm guessing this means that this was something that was running through a lot of DC books. Um, it must become terribly frustrating to him to fail every time, but I suppose that if, I, if he was really concerned about winning, he would take on one of the weaker heroes like Green Arrow. Maybe the Master of Flights should tackle someone he knows he can't beat, like Sugar and Spike. And, of course, e. Nelson Bridwell, being the witty man of comedy that he is, has a retort, what, and get clobbered by that pint-sized genius, Bernie the Brain? So, ha-ha. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so that brings us to an end for World's Finest, and a few more promos, and we'll go to the next and final issue of the month. After these messages, we'll be right You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. 
witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Next up, we have Action Comics number 409, uh, which was released on December 30th, 1971 which actually has a pretty cool-looking cover by Nick Carty. Um, and basically, this is one of those covers. It, it's not. It's actually pretty cool. You have Superman. It looks like he's got a mob coming up at him. And he's got who's the, a young boy being referred to as his son behind him. And Superman says, that I don't care what he's done. He's still my son. Uh, basically, because the crowd... Uh, being led by a cop, of course, I'm sorry, a police officer, um, basically are con considering he's evil. And there's a, a blurb on the cover that says, The Satanic Son of Superman. 
So, uh, The Satanic Son of Superman. It was written by Carrie Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and was edited by Murray Boltonoff. And Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. One day, we see a 10-year-old boy in a strange outfit playing alone at a playground, who is described as the embodiment of raw evil. To prove this point, we see him emanate a beam from his mind. Suddenly, at another part of the park, all of the water in a water fountain turns into a lethally concentrated form of sulfur. Fortunately, Superman is flying by on one of his daily patrols and spots the danger. Flying around the fountain at super speed, he creates a vacuum that allows him to actually draw the gas up into the ionosphere, where it will dissipate harmlessly. As he lands to investigate, he hears someone shout, Dad! And it's the same young boy as before, and we learn that Superman is indeed his father. Yes, boys and girls, this is an imaginary story, and we eventually learn that it takes place in the year 1984. And on this imaginary day, Superman and his son, Chris, K-R-Y-S, are next, are next surprised by the Trolls. Okay, that's spelled T-R-O-L-V as in Victor S, so I, it's hard to say, but the Trolls. And they are android assassins built by an unnamed criminal scientist to plague Superman long after the scientist's death. And they are armed with Cosmo torches, which are power powerful enough to even kill Superman. So to keep him safe, Superman throws his son towards the sun. That's for Scott. And the... Then he spends the next nine seconds taking down all the trolls. Trolls. Before flying up to catch Chris, then heading home with him, and then they decide to head up to the Lunar Ultra Diner on the moon. And we learn that... This is how we learn that it's 1984, because they literally say it's hard to believe that it's only been 15 years since man landed on the moon, which I did some math, and they landed in 69. Anyway, during the trip, Superman recalls how his wife had died during childbirth, which left Superman to take care of him all alone. So in order to give Chris the attention he needed, Superman actually revealed his identity on the air, and then gave it up. So the two of them land in a room at the Lunar Colony, where Chris gets washed up while Superman goes to order their meal. Unfortunately, at this point, Chris doubles over in pain and falls into some Next thing we see is that Chris is back in his spacesuit, running across the lunar landscape. Suddenly, we see huge chunks of rocks bursting up from the ground like a meteor shower in reverse, with one actually busting through the colony restaurant, which is where Superman is. But this rock also busts through the dome above, which not only means that the air inside is escaping, but those inside are being subjected to the moon's negative 200 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. So Superman flies up, and uses his heat vision to soften the plastic dome and stretch it back together with the idea that the cold temperatures outside will cause it to quickly, you know, cool again and solidify. So then he flies up to see what caused the problem, and while he's flying around, he sees that Chris is running around. But he can't really deal with that now because, you know, the meteor shower thing. So he flies away from the lunar surface to see that the problem is actually white dwarf fragments crashing through the moon because they're so dense that you know, even the lunar surface can stop them. Basically, the way it's drawn, it looks like they're coming at the Earth from the south, or the moon from its like south pole, and crashing up through it in front, coming up to the north. 
So, in order to keep everyone on the loop safe, uh, Superman flies over and, you know, moves it out of the way until the swarm has run its course. Because, you know, this is back when Superman could do that and yet not cause any problems on Earth. Um, so while he's holding the moon in place, he thinks back to the day that his pregnant wife, Chrysala, K-R-Y-S-A-L-L-A, so now you know where Chris's name comes from, revealed that she was actually a witch, which caused Superman to basically go, Oh yeah? Well, I'm Superman! So then they went to the fortress to use Superman's supercomputer to find out what their child might be like. But, you know, even the supercomputer didn't know. So then the flashback ends with Superman finding out about Chrysala dying during childbirth, as we saw before. Uh, so we see Superman return the moon to its proper orbit, and then Superman has dinner with Chris before they head back to Earth and their home, which is basically uh, a nice house on top of the WGBS building. The only time we see this building all month. Uh, since Chris says he has no memory of being on the lunar surface earlier, Superman uses his prismatic probe to hypnotize Chris, uh, who admits to causing the meteor shower and changing the water to sulfur earlier. He then goes on to admit to several more tragedies, including, but not limited to, the Hoover Dam disaster of 1983, the wreck of the first U.S. Mars flight in 1981, the second Great San Francisco Earthquake, which happened in 1982, and also the terrible Brazilian Plague that same year. And then before that, but Superman, of course, at this point, kind of stops and you know, like, because he's hurt enough. And knowing his son is responsible for basically the mass murder of thousands of people, Superman is faced with a grim choice. Picking up a Kryptonian weapon, Superman blasts Chris, which actually causes him to split into two. One good, and one evil. With the good Chris unconscious, the evil twin explains that he was basically like an invisible Siamese twin due to being stuck in a dimensional warp, and that he was occasionally able to separate from Chris and enter our dimension and cause all those tragedies, and now that Chris is dead, he can remain in our dimension permanently. At about that time, two of those trolls crashed through the window to the room and hit the evil Chris with their Cosmotorches, before Superman can even move. After quickly dispatching of them, he sees the evil Chris fade back to his own dimension. Uh, so turning, he sees that the good Chris is still here, so he carefully bathes the good Chris with his heat fission, waking him up. This turns, it turns out that the Kryptonian weapon was actually a cryo-rifle, and that Superman was merely going to use it to freeze Chris until he could figure out a way to drive the evil out of him. Thus, Chris is now cured, and they imagine living, and they can imagine living happily ever after. The imaginary end. My negatives is that this is another imaginary story. I know these were cool, and I understand why the uh, writers would occasionally do this, but in the early 70s, they were trying to, you know, make him a little more serious, especially DC, who was trying to, you know, com ha had to deal with competing with uh, the rising popularity of Marvel more and more. And they do this. Granted, it's not as bad as some of the others, but still. I mean, I do like the fact that it's an, it's a, told it done in one story but uh but 
Uh, next question I have is why is Chris wearing tights while everyone else is wearing basically normal clothes? I mean, you think that would kind of, you know, I don't know, make him stand out no matter what happens. Um, but I don't understand why Superman had to reveal his whole identity to the world either. I, the way it's shown is that he stood up on the newscaster, did some special, and just said, hey, guess what? I'm Clark Kent, but also I am Superman. And uh, you didn't see it, but I did the whole glass, taking, taking off the glasses and opening the shirt thing. Because um, I'm weird like that. And by weird, I mean cool. Uh, but super, I, I, don't, I don't understand why he had to reveal to the whole world. I, I, you would think that you know he could show his friends, maybe, like Lois, Harry, Jimmy, Morgan, I guess, so that they could you know, kind of help cover for him and then just leave it alone for a while. And then maybe years later, uh, when the child is able to be on his own or you know be independent, he could go back to be Clark. But this kind of ruins it, and also also opens up all of his friends to all the danger. The granted, just because just their association with Superman caused the problems, but knowing that he was friends with these people, I mean, Pete Ross is still alive. Lana's still alive. As far as we know, they don't actually say this, but uh, you know, Lois, Jimmy, Perry, I would imagine Perry's still supposed to be alive. Morgan Edge. All these people are alive. They've worked with Clark. They know Clark. They're kind of friends with Clark. And so I would think this would just open up the quote unquote criminal element to be able to hurt Superman through them. But I don't know, maybe he just wasn't thinking. Um <laughs> I do have a note here. He moved the moon. There's all now. Granted, when I was younger, I thought this was pretty cool that you know someone's strong enough to move it. Uh, I remember seeing on Super Friends where even Green Lantern was able to do that using the his Green Lantern ring. Uh, and Superman moved moons and planets all the time on that show. And I know he did it quite a bit in the in the Silver Age uh, and the late Golden Age. And I also know that we uh, that I actually. Uh, Talked about him doing that a few episodes ago in Super. Oh, that he actually did that a few episodes ago in the Bronze Age, when he created a planet. But I have since learned things about physics and how the moon helps control stuff on Earth, like weather, the tides, uh, all that stuff. So, granted, I don't know how else he would have stopped it, but I would imagine he could have figured something out, like. Maybe his indestructible, stretchable cape could do something. I don't know. But I would think that moving the moon would actually cause more trouble than letting the swarm run its course. That's just me. Uh, the last question I have, though, is um, now we see Superman flying Chris back to Earth. Chris is wearing his little spacesuit, which makes sense. You know, they are in space. And Superman's got this mask, on, mask thing on so they can actually talk. But, um,. Chris would burn up during re-entry. Granted, maybe he got him. He got wrapped up in the cape, but we don't see that. So maybe we'll just like to assume things, but you know what happens when you assume. And um, so that was just kind of weird. I don't know. On the other hand, this was actually a pretty good story. Um, it had good pacing and a nice little mystery. Oh, excuse me, and a nice little mystery. And um, the, I, I still thought the art was really good. Um. I mean, when you see Superman have to decide that he's going to have to 
part of what sells the fact that he's that the idea that Superman would actually kill his son is the look on his face. Kurt Swan is really good with little details like that. Expressions on faces being probably one of his biggest ones. Between the look on his face when he's eating kryptonite to when he's trying out a cigar, a cigar to now when you see the anguish on his face of having to well, we later end up. He's, we later learn he's just going to freeze his son, but it really makes us think that he really is going to kill his own his own child. So yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, and like I said, I like the fact that it was a done in one instead of two parter like we've had before. Uh, and this was done a lot better than the last time Carrie Beast did an imaginary story, at least in my humble opinion. So anyway. Uh, back up on this one is another adventure of Superman in college. Uh, it's The Healing Hands from Beyond, written by Carrie Bates, with art by John Kalnan and Murphy Anderson on the inks. And um, on this story, Clark and his friend Ted from college are driving through the desert on spring break, when suddenly Ted turns the Jeep too sharply and causes it to turn over. Ted is actually thrown clear and just walks off. Clark who's actually still trapped under the Jeep, sees that Ted isn't paying any attention to his calls for help, and since no one else is around, he just kind of lifts the Jeep off of him. And using his telescopic vision, he sees Ted enter a cave, so again, since you know it's just him and some cacti, uh, Clark changes to Superman and follows him into the cave. When he enters the cave, he sees that Ted is now wearing the garb of an Indian medicine man. As Superman approaches him, Ted shakes his rattle, which they call it a rattle, looks like a maraca. I don't know, I feel kind of weird saying a grown man's using a rattle, but anyway. Uh, this causes Superman to actually somersault backwards, because once again, it's magic. So to delay Ted from leaving the cave, Superman punches the ground, which opens up a small fissure and throws Ted off his balance. Again, Superman tries to approach him, but this time, he finds himself trapped up in a small rainstorm, unable to follow as Ted flies away. Now, this is actually is pretty cool. Uh, basically, it's it looks like he's stuck in a tube, but it's just the width of the rainstorm. He, I mean, he can't. The clouds over him, he can't fly away. It looks like he's stuck in a tube with a cloud on it. It's really cool. Um, so, um, Superman burrows down through the ground to escape the rain and then follows Ted to the small town of Cedarville, where we next see a surgeon having some trouble due to his nerves. See, he has his patient on, currently on the surgery table, on the operating table, uh, with a bullet near his heart. And this surgeon is nervous because one false move during surgery could kill him. So Ted actually floats over the hospital and performs a ritualistic dance which magically gives the surgeon the burst of confidence he needs to actually perform the surgery. But at about this point, the power goes out. So Superman flies in and uses his x-ray vision to both provide some light and allow the surgeon to see through the patient to perform his work. So with the operation finished and the power restored, Ted enters with no memory of what has happened. We learn that the surgeon, Dr. Navarro, is the great-great-grandson of a medicine man and the stories, of him, the stories of whom inspired him to become a doctor. 
So Superman theorizes that perhaps the medicine man's spirit knew the doctor needed help and actually possessed Ted to, act, to help out. But, of course, we'll never learn that. So uh, Superman flies Ted back to the Jeep, and I guess everything goes back to normal. So the first thing I want to point out is maybe I've been wrong about Superman's X-ray vision in the pre-crisis. Everything I've ever read, though, I mean, I have read just, I mean, not everything. I'm not going to say everything, but I've read just about, just about all of the uh, Bronze Age stuff later than this. Um, from about 73 on, I guess. And I don't remember ever seeing, and I've read a few uh, uh, Silver Age stuff, uh, but maybe some of my fellow podcast network people can help me out. I have met, uh, until these last few stories where um, Leo Dorfman and now Carrie Bates have actually shown that Superman's X-ray vision can actually allow other people to see through stuff, I have never seen that happen before. From what everything I've ever seen pre-crisis, and of course post-crisis is a different story, but pre-crisis, it basically just works for him. It's his vision. So he can see through stuff, but no one else can. And this thing with the, and I can even understand that maybe it gives off some X-rays so it can light the fuses from from Terraman. That's fine. But that it not only allows the doctor to look through the patient, but actually provides light is just a little weird for me. But I don't know. This story probably would have been just about perfect if it wasn't for that part of the scene. The power could have stayed on and Superman wasn't really needed for that, then I think that it still would have been a pretty good story. I probably would have probably would have had complained about the fact that Superman didn't do anything helpful and just looked like an idiot. But still, um, this doesn't help that. On the other hand, it's a pretty good thing Ted was possessed, otherwise Superman wouldn't have been there to help him. Um, at first, when I first, the first time I read this, I actually thought Ted was somehow related to this doctor, especially since they mentioned his, that the chief is his dad's. But then I realized that Ted is not related at all. It's just a random thing. And if it had happened to anybody else, even if Superman, or even if Clark himself had been uh, possessed by the spirit of the Indian medicine man, he would not have been able to help as you know as he ends up doing here. So it was pretty lucky, even though the power's a little weird. But seriously, if anyone knows the answer to that, could you please email me at umbc81 at gmail.com, please? I really do not understand this part of Superman's X-ray vision. It makes no sense how it would work that way. And I don't remember it ever working that way in any form ever, except these, like, three or four instances that we've seen so far. So if anyone else knows of any other times where this, like, there's more of a precedent for this, please let me know. Um, now, positives. Um, even with what I've said so far, this is a pretty good complete story for seven pages. It doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel crammed. You get a lot of story for seven small pages. And the art here is actually pretty good. The only thing I have a problem with is that Anderson's a little uh, big on the inks. Now, I don't know if maybe it was laid out by Kalman or by Kalman, however you say it, and then Anderson 
finished it, but you really can't tell that this is not Murphy Anderson. Uh, it basically, I mean, some of the layout's a little different than what you've seen him do, but basically it just looks like Murphy Anderson art. Um, with some more Kurt Swan influences in it. But yeah, but mostly it really, it really just looks like Murphy Anderson art, so I don't know, I, I don't know a lot about John Kelman and his artwork. I've seen him do some backup stuff uh, later on in Superboy, but seriously, it doesn't look like there's any in, there's much influence from anyone outside of Anderson at all in the art. That's all I can say. Otherwise, I liked it though. Now, uh, there is one other. There was one other backup, uh, the Secret Olympic Heroes, featuring the Teen Titans, uh, written by Bob Haney with art by Alex Toth. And as I mentioned last issue. Um, this is actually the second half of a story that was uh, from Teen Titans number four. They split it between this issue and the previous one. Uh, but this uh, was from Teen Titans number four with a July-August 1966 cover date. And um, since I'm reading them anyway, uh, Bob Rosakis actually has a letter in this issue as well. And um, he actually uh, writes in with the same kind of problem that I had when I reviewed the issue. Uh, this is basically the Leo, uh, the Master of Miracles issue, where um, Superman was kind of going up against a guy that's a lot like, looks like he, they were trying to play him up as like Jesus. But um, he writes, dear editor, Master of Miracles from Action 406 had me fooled for a while, but I realized the truth as soon as Superman got the call. Uh, the emergency call from Candor. What bothered me about the story, though, was his attitude towards the people of Bottled City. I find it hard to believe that he would use the blackout ray on them just because they bothered him with what he thought was a minor problem. As for the ghost that haunted Clark Kent, it was a rather good story, despite the short seven pages you gave it. It was definitely a different approach to ghost stories. Bob Rizakis, Elmont, New York. And... This time it just says editor, and since E. Nelson Bredwell is actually signing them over in Superman and World's Finest, I'm thinking this is probably actually Murray Boltonoff, and he writes, If you had the responsibility Superman has, and someone tried to get you to put them aside for a problem concerning a census, you might get angry too. Just goes to show you, even a man of might can lose his temper and make a mistake. And you know, that might be true. But there's a difference between getting upset and then cutting off all of their communications with the outside world. That's all I'm going to say on that. Just going to leave it there. Uh, and now uh, we'll get a couple more promos and we'll wrap it up with the elsewhere. After these messages, we'll be right back. Sawate. My name is Stella and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. 
I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. Supermanhomepage.com. Okay, elsewhere in the DC multiverse, I guess we can call it here. Other the other books that have a cover date of March 1972, we have Adventure Comics number 416, which is a 96-page, well actually it's 100 page, but with the ads it's basically 96 pages. Um uh, featuring uh Supergirl and other people from Adventure Comics. And this is basically an all women's issue. Uh, some people might like that. And even though they've got a lot of women on here that aren't actually featured in the book, uh, Supergirl stars in three stories The Untold Story of Argo City, Supergirl's Rival Parents, and The Black Magic of Supergirl. All of them are reprints, of course. Uh, we've also got, <laughs> poor guy, Johnny Thunder in The Black Canary, which, even though it's a Johnny Thunder story, I'm guessing it's included because of The Black Canary. Uh, Wonder Woman is in a story called Villainy Incorporated, Phantom Lady, Mystery of the Black Cat, and Mary, Girl of a Thousand Gimmicks, in The Duel of the Gimmicks. And I point that out because the cover shows Wonder Woman, uh, shows a scene from the Wonder Woman story, Shows a scene from Supergirl's Black Magic. And then we see Supergirl holding up the sign, the, the pictures of the two stories. And then under her, we see all these other women from DC that aren't actually in the book. We see Wonder Woman. We see Black Canary. But we see Batgirl. And I'm guessing that's either the Golden Age Harlequin or maybe that's the Girl of a Thousand Gimmicks. Uh, and now Wonder Woman also, by the way, on this cover, both times you see her is in her traditional red, white, and blue leotard. Just wanted to point that out. Uh, we see the cheetah. We see someone I'm not familiar with because I can't tell who it is. We see another person I'm not familiar with, but uh, she is from that. Um, you know what? Never mind. Screw it. Didn't I even say, never said anything. Uh, we have ghosts number four, uh, featuring a really moody Neil Adams. Or Neil Adams. Nick Cardi cover. We have our army at war number two forty three. We have Wonder Woman 199, uh, which has a weird-looking cover. Um, I mean, uh, by Jeff Jones, and it looks it does not look like your typical Wonder Woman cover. Um, I mean, it's just weird art. Sorry. Um, we have Falling in Love number 130, and with the special feature that ten groovy guys reveal my idea girl. I let ten groovy guys reveal my ideal girl. Can you kind of feel like there's like these people are like 
like these 40 year old people that are trying to act like teenagers. It's anyway. Uh, we have Our Fighting Forces, number 136. We have Phantom Stranger, number 18, with a fantastically looking, fantastically awesome looking Neil Adams cover featuring a girl that looks like she's having an orgasm. Uh, Son of Tomahawk, number 139. Uh, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, number 4. With a Nick Carney cover. Again, very moody. We have Young Romance, number 180. Uh, that actually teaches you to learn the art of kissing. I don't know how they teach you that in a comic book, but okay. Uh, we have The House of Mystery, number 200. Uh, so and that was a pretty big deal, I guess, for them. And they got uh, with a nice Mike Kaluta cover, which basically just looks really darn awesome. We get all these animals that look like they're howling at the moon, but the moon has three demons in it. Oh yeah, uh, Mr. Miracle number seven. Um, <laughs> with the with the saying "Visit Apocalypse and Die." Uh, a really cool cover. Uh, not really cool. Uh, we get J uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 147, with a cover by Neil Adams and inked by Murphy Anderson. And again, it's cool, but I'm not a fan of Murphy Anderson inking Neil Adams. Uh, we have Teen Titans, number 38, which actually has a pretty cool looking uh, Nick Carty cover, too. Uh, we have Batman, number 240, and with another fun Neil Adams cover. Uh, Flash, number 213, which is a special double Flash issue. Um, uh, basically, we do see both Flashes fighting each other. Uh, we have Weird War Tales, number 4, which is a really weird-looking... Joe Kubert cover. We have Young Love number 93 uh, asking, How do you rate with men? And you get to test yourself on that. Uh, Girls Love Stories number 167 uh, with 10 ways to make him notice you. Uh, we have Justice League of America number 97, another uh, Neil Adams Murphy Anderson cover, which looks halfway cool. But the inks kind of kill it. I don't know. But anyway, if you ever want to see uh, the, the Justice League running around looking like they're either on fire or wrapped in cellophane, check out this issue. Uh, we have Lois, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 190. Uh, which, wow, I think Lois is going to die on this cover. But she looks groovy. Far out, even. Uh, we have... Uh, unexpected number 133 which again has this really cool uh, moody cover I don't I don't know what the technique is that they use but it just looks really cool we get strange adventures number 235 with an, a Neil Adams cover and this one actually um, unlike some of the others uh, actually has some superhero stuff in it Featuring the time that uh, Adam Strange pulled the Justice League of America to Ron. We have Superboy number 183. And uh, with, a, with a Nick Carty cover. Uh, 
with featuring uh, Super Baby, the Mighty Lord of the Jungle. And I don't know if it's just the way Nick Cardi draws it, or if he's really trying to emulate it, but the Superboy on this, or the Super Baby on this cover, literally look, uh, looks a lot like, um, the, the, the face looks kind of like the barrel-chested, tough-looking Superman from the Fleischer cartoons. Uh, just because it's simply drawn for the animation, not because it looks better than anything else. Uh, we have Adventure Comics number 417. Um, then we have, featuring Supergirl, of course. We have Detective Comics number 421. Uh, and it looks like Batman's in some trouble on this cover. And finally, we have Heartthrobs number 139. Uh, the stars tell you how to analyze your boyfriend. Also, never love an actor. That's what it says. So, it must be true. So, that's it for this month. Um, again, uh, please go to www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com uh, for more awesome Superman-related podcasts, uh, including mine. <laughs> and um, I really do want to apologize uh, again for the last for the lack of episode last week. I have some plans on how I'm going to remedy that situation, and hopefully I can actually do that. And um, so I plan to have a new episode next week and not miss any more. But you know how, th unfortunately, the way things go. But um, I do want to apologize, and I'm going to work on doing better next time. Uh, but thank you for listening, and um, you all have a great week. And here's my wife. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.